Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 1st, 2017, and this is episode 2077 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday, and it means it's an expert council Q&A show. I've got uh, seven different council members lined up for you today. Very diverse show. I'll tell you about it in just a second. Before I do that, I wanted to uh, remind you guys, tick-tock, tick-tock, August is gone. Do you get that? I mean, this is the first month of fall. It's not the first day of fall, right? But this is the first month of fall. September 21st, I guess, is the first day of fall this year. It's usually the 21st. The, uh, the fall equinox, right? Time just going so fast. So, so fast. It's amazing to me how fast 2017 is, is just going away, man. I saw Christmas crap in stores yet, uh, the other day. Not, I don't mean like just had the Christmas crap out. I mean like the sign saying like get ready for Christmas already. To me that kind of ruins it and they start it freaking this far out. But it is just a kind of a signal that time's always marching on. And what do I tell you guys about that? You have to be working for and building your better life or time is working against you. Time works for us only if we work with it. And when we are, we are, when we, when we work in, in ways that are negative, Or when we just don't do things. Apathy uh, or uh, improper actions both cause time to work against you. Remember, I'm big on apathy, but I am big on what? Proactive apathy. It's one of my favorite terms. Proactive apathy is turning off the TV and going out and building a business. That's proactive apathy. Anyway, just a little reminder that time is marching on. It's for what we're going to talk about today. Storage of bulk livestock feed with Darby Simpson. All you could ever want to know about vitamin D from Old Doc Bones. M1938 leggings and snakes. What's that all about? Tim Glantz will tell you. The, the fourth quarter financial outlook from John Pugliano. The keto versus the paleo diet from Gary Collins. A report on bees in the eclipse from Michael Jordan. Hosting for your WordPress site with Nicole Sauce. And the rise in prices and shortages of gas in the wake of Hurricane Harvey and a bit more on not so much price gouging that's like, I don't know. We'll, we'll get to it when I get there. Before we do that, let's take a look at the year in history. Uh, last episode, I gave you one segment from the year 53. Today, we'll get the other. We have today from Southpaw Bend, the year 53 AD, Claudius further weakens the Senate. Contributed by Southpaw Ben. This year, Claudius gets the Senate to pass a decree that gives imperial procurators jurisdiction over financial cases. This power had been a major part of what the Senate still had power to control, and it makes a big step towards even further tyranny as it further consolidated power into the emperor's subordinates and thus the emperor's hands. My take by Southpaw Ben. While the Senate has been a shadow of its previous self for years, This was a further step towards having senators play their own petty power games for control in the Senate and keeping their focus of their ambitions toward these games and away from actual power, either through attempting to overthrow the emperor themselves or by taking back the power of the Senate from the emperor. 
During the Roman times, family honor and legacy was seen as the most important thing for most of these powerful families. And since the overthrow of the last king at the start of the Roman Republic, being powerful in the Senate was seen as more honorable than being dictator for life, as they generally had a poor view of those trying to become kings, but would concede dictatorial power in cases of emergency. A lot in that one, huh? First, I want you to think about this. Like, Nero is a young man that will soon be emperor, and the emperorship itself is becoming more powerful under Claudius. Yeah, like a complete psychopath nut job that will make people yearn for the good days of Caligula, right? He's on his way, right? This, this guy's a nut and a psychopathic nut at that. Well, we can look at our own history and see that the Senate and the Congress will give more power to the president in time of emergency, and sometimes they give it to them in a way that you can't ever get it back. This happened with many presidents. This happened with Abraham Lincoln during the, the, the Civil War. It was, it, it was a tremendous amount of power given to the president the president didn't have. This also happened with Franklin Roosevelt due to the Depression and then World War II. And almost all of the powers that were obtained at the, the level of the presidency in those emergency situations still remain with the president today. Many, many, many years later. The president at the time, you know, of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, was dramatically a weaker position than it is today. In, in many, many ways. So, history repeats itself. That's, that's something that you can definitely see here. But man, I mean, you talk about having it, cause here's what you, you have to realize, like, if we look at Emperor Claudius at this time, we think this guy was pretty freaking, Evil, honestly, right? Um, but as the emperors go, kind of chill in many ways, you know. You'll see what I mean as we get into the years of Nero. So having this additional power at that point might not seem like a big deal, but it's this incremental consolidation of power, and then sooner or later that meets up with somebody like Nero, or who knows where it'll lead in the United States eventually. I know you think it's Trump, but if you don't think you can have worse than Trump, just wait. History of American presidents has shown you when you think you've had the worst, the worst is yet to come. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic today and take your first uh, question for expert council member. Uh, the one I have first today is a, a question on the bulk storage of hog feed for Darby Simpson. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast, calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Steve about how to store pig feed when you're dealing with rodents like mice, rats, chipmunks, tearing up your feed and destroying it. So some details about Steve's situation is that he's in Michigan, and he's currently running eight pigs. Uh, he's running these guys in the woods, and he's getting really frustrated with his, his feed handling. Um, currently what he's doing is getting pallets of 50-pound bags of feed and trying to store them in his pole barn, uh, which is like a 1,000 feet away from where the pigs are at, and he's having issues with rodents. And uh, Steve tells me that he put a bunch of rat traps around the pallet last year, and <laughs> as he says, 
slaughtered countless chipmunks that would dare come up to the pallet. So uh, this year is a little bit better, and uh, he thinks that maybe he has, uh, you know, kind of cut down on the chipmunk population a little bit. Uh, he's also uh, heard that, uh, you know, things like mint can deter mice, so he's wanting to know about that and just has a lot of questions. So, Steve, I've, I've got a, a, a couple of suggestions for you here. And uh, the first thing I would tell you to do, if you're still using 50-pound bags and at your scale, that's pretty reasonable to assume that that's what you're going to be doing. Um, years and years ago, uh, I, I had a, a referral uh, of a place to go and purchase 55-gallon drums that had locking lids that went on the top. So it's got a, a metal lid with a locking ring that's got a handle on it. And I am still using those daggone things. And I think I bought those back in 2008. And yeah, a couple of them have got a hole in the lid. And I put a tarp over them to uh, keep the rain out. I put tarps over them anyway if I'm storing anything outside just to help keep moisture off of them. But I think I paid a whopping $5 a piece for those. And I've seen things similar at the farm store for around like 12 bucks. So even if you had to go spend $12... I think it's money well spent, particularly if you're storing these cans uh, in a in a barn. Uh, I can generally get if I if I pack things carefully, I can usually get six 50 pound bags in each one of those. I can easily get five. So if we can get 250 pounds of feed in each one of these 55 gallon drums, you might need somewhere between seven and nine of those, ten of those things, uh, even if they're twelve dollars a piece we're talking just a little over a hundred bucks, which is pretty daggone cheap. And that is going to keep the rodents completely out. And I, I think that's going to be your quickest, simplest way to go about this. Um, you had mentioned that you're, you're getting all these bags in. Uh, something else you could look at doing, and what I'll do is provide a link uh, in today's show notes, uh, is is get a hold of a... a it's a basically it's a pallet system, and I bought one of these this year. And, and oftentimes you'll see these used uh, for grain farmers. They'll actually load these things up with bags of soybean seed or corn seed or what have you, and they'll uh, use these pallet systems to reload uh, during planting season. So it's really made for seed, but I started using it for grain, and it's worked very, very well. You didn't mention if you had a tractor or not. If you've got a, a tractor, I'm going to say 40 horsepower or bigger, preferably 50 to 55 horsepower, uh, this pallet system might be something you should consider. It's a little bit pricey, but it sure does make uh, getting the feed out of the pigs a whole lot easier for me. I'm able to use the loader of my tractor and cantilever this pallet system over the hog feeder and uh, it's just got a little slide chute on it and it looks like an inverted pyramid inside and the, the feed just slides right out. The reason I mention this is that if you had one of these in your barn, it comes with a lid that makes it very, very rodent proof. I think particularly if you were to uh, put some concrete blocks on top of that lid, uh, that it can be very, very rodent proof. Uh, you, you could actually store quite a bit of feed in that which kind of brings me to my next point. You you had asked, you know, like at what scale does it make sense to stop getting feed in bags and start getting it in bulk delivery? Um, a lot of times bulk delivery, there's a number of ways you can get that. Uh, if you had one of these, these pallets, you could actually have uh, an auger uh, 
feed truck auger all the feed straight into one of these these pallet systems, and you could store quite a bit that way. Um, you might get it in a tote. Uh, usually that's a 1,000 or 2,000 pound tote. And again, typically that's going to require a tractor to, to move things around. Um, your, your other option would be to get a small grain bin and, and obviously you could get feed delivered that way. That's probably going to be the most cost effective if you can take delivery of three to four tons at a time. I like to try and use all of my feed up within five weeks of delivery. We have it custom ground fresh. So if, if I can use it up within five or six weeks, I know that I'm getting a very high nutritive value out of it. And that's kind of, kind of my barometer. So if you can work it out to get bulk feed brought to you, and I'd even say initially, if you can use it up within 60 days, that I'd probably be okay with that. But if you can get bulk feed brought to you, uh, where it's cheaper per pound, delivered, and you're not messing with these 50 pound bags, and you've got some way of handling that, getting the feed into uh, the hopper for the pigs, be that in five-gallon buckets or in one of these uh, these pallet uh, distribution systems like I have, uh, I, I think that's that's when you make the leap. And you'll just have to do the math and figure out when that makes sense. Obviously, if you've got eight little pigs, they're not going through a whole lot of feed, so that's not going to make sense. But as they get bigger or as you scale up, particularly I'd say once you get into the 12 to 16 uh, head range with, with your pigs that looking at bulk delivery is probably going to start to make sense. And it really is, or at least can be in my experience, quite a bit less expensive than getting 50 pound bags. So I think that maybe gives you uh, some ways to figure that out, but look and see like, you know, how fast can you use up, uh, the, the bulk feed, you know, uh, can you use enough that it makes sense, you know, in a, in a, uh, five, six, yeah, maybe seven or eight week period to get it brought down in bulk and then buy a storage bin to put it in. You can probably find a used uh, two to four ton storage bin anywhere from, I'm going to say 250 to 600 bucks on Craigslist and get that thing put up and have an auger truck, put it right in there. And then if you have that, even if you have to use five gallon buckets, that's what I do. I use five gallon buckets to fill up this feed pallet. And then I use a tractor to take that back and fill up the uh, the pig feeder. So that's that's what we do here. Works pretty well. And obviously, if you've got it in one of those bulk bins like that, rodent issues are not going to be a problem. Um, I'll tell you one thing: I'd have a whole herd of cats out there in that barn that uh, get fed a little bit, but are pretty hungry and they're hunting rodents all the time. We we've got four cats here and they earn their keep. And they've really cut down on the number of rodents we have. So I think having uh, having some barn cats uh, and some 55-gallon drums would be the quick and immediate inexpensive way to go. And you'd see a vast improvement in your rodent population. So there you go, Steve. I hope that helps. I uh, hope that gives you some ideas. If uh, something wasn't clear, shoot me an email and ask away. I'll be happy to answer it for you. But would really encourage you to look for some of those 55-gallon drums. For the rest of you, to learn more about me, please feel free to check out DarbySimpson.com, where there's tons of free blog articles or check out the grass-fed life podcast over at permaculturevoices.com i do that each week with my good friend diego footer we've got well over 60 episodes of that out one hour episodes where we talk about all kinds of things related to how to profit uh, from farming 
full-time or part-time raising beef, poultry, and pork. Uh, if you dig that and you really want to make a go of this, then check out the Farming Business Essentials Workshop that we have coming up here at the end of October. It's going to be held October 26th to the 28th, just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, about 30 minutes away in my hometown of Martinsville, Indiana. That's a three-day intensive workshop where Diego and I come in and really teach a whole lot on not just how to in terms of how to raise these animals and and farm, but how to run an effective business, how to figure out what enterprise to run, what enterprise to start first, second, third, uh, branding, marketing, business preparation, cash flow, you name it. We talk about it. It's a very intensive course. We've we've run it twice before and sold it out both times. No reason to think we won't sell this one out. Again, it's coming up at the end of October. Head on over to permaculturevoices.com. Click on the courses and check out the link there for the Farm Business Essentials Intensive 3-Day. If you've got any questions, obviously shoot me an email. I'll be happy to answer it for you. Look forward to meeting some of you there in person this fall. As always, everyone, thanks for sending in the questions. Keep them coming. Have a wonderful weekend and take care. All right, good stuff from uh, Darby. Now i got a question on vitamin D and upping your vitamin D for old Doc Bones. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Now with a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Kelly, who writes, How can we up our vitamin D safely, and is the pharmaceutical grade, 50,000 international units per week, okay for kids 10 and 12? My kid's vitamin D was tested at 9, yes, 9. It's supposed to be between 80 and 100. What are the risks if too low? I gardened, but it was tested at 20 last winter, and I don't know if I can hang with another dark Montana winter at 48 degrees north. Kelly, vitamin D is produced by the body when skin is exposed to sunlight. It's essential for strong bones because it helps the body utilize calcium from its diet. Gardening is a great way to get sunlight and thus vitamin D into your system, but you can also get it in your diet with things like dairy products, beef liver, fish liver oils, uh, fatty fish like salmon, tuna, and mackerel, and egg yolks. A lot of foods actually come with vitamin D added. A lot of people notice that their milk has been fortified with vitamin D. Now, in general, young people have higher blood levels of vitamin D than older people. Males have higher levels than females. Non-Hispanic blacks seem to have the lowest levels and non-Hispanic whites the highest. The majority of Americans have blood levels lower than 75 nanomoles per liter, which is, I think, the measurement that they were taking in your case. The other measurement is nanograms per milliliter, and 30 is the uh, normal level. Traditionally, vitamin D deficiency has been associated with rickets, a disease in which the bone tissue is weak, leading to skeletal deformities. Otherwise, other than some nonspecific muscle and bone pain, you really can't tell that you're low. Low levels of the vitamin have been associated, however, with cardiovascular disease, memory deficits in older folks, asthma in kids, and even certain cancers. Now, how much should you take in a supplement? You have to be careful because too much vitamin D can cause an abnormally high blood calcium level. If you get that, it could result in nausea, constipation, confusion, abnormal heart rhythms, even kidney stones. Nearly all vitamin D overdoses come from supplements. Very hard to overdose on vitamin D just from your diet. 
The Institute of Medicine's Food and Nutrition Board set recommendations for vitamin D intake at 4,000 international units per day for adults, 3,000 international units per day for kids 4 to 8, 2,500 international units per day for kids 1 to 3, 1,500 international units per day for infants 6 to 12 months, and 1,000 international units a day for newborns through 6 months. Some recent studies, however, suggest that healthy adults can tolerate more than 10,000 international units of vitamin D per day. Some adults do take that much, but I wouldn't go that high with the kids. At 10 and 12, officially, they can take the adult dose 4,000 international units, but I wouldn't go higher. More is not always better. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast is Survival Medicine Hour at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Great stuff from Doc Bones. Just, we're lucky to have, you know, someone like him on the council. I think we're lucky to have everybody, but to have, you know, an MD that can give us straight answers on stuff like this is great. Uh, next up, I have a question for Tim Glantz on military leggings and snake bites. Tim, take it away. Hey, everybody. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with a TSPC expert uh, answer for West. And he's asking, very simply, are M1938 leggings snake-proof? And a lot of you are probably wondering, what in the world is an M1938 legging? M1938 legging, if you've watched any World War II movies like Saving Private Ryan, you've noticed these uh, lace-up canvas leggings that they wore uh, over the top of the uh, shoes. Uh, they were kind of a... Uh, they weren't a high boot, wasn't a low shoe, it was right in the middle there. Uh, and instead of having a full-up boot, they wore those leggings that wrapped around and laced up. Uh it was one of those things that uh, it was the evolution to the combat boot. They started in World War One with the you know same kind of low cut shoe and wrapped around those uh, uh, wool putties usually. And some of the cavalry guys had some uh, leather leggings. And then in World War Two uh, they went well in 1938, as the name implies, they went to these canvas wraps. And then later in World War Two they just decided, hey, why don't we just make the boot taller? But anyway, uh, yeah, you, you see a lot of people talking about these for, for snakes. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say no for a couple of reasons. Number one, when they were new, that canvas, it probably would have stopped most snakes. I can't guarantee it would have stopped all of them. But they made the last pair of the M38 leggings in about 1945. So right now you're talking about 70-plus-year-old canvas that you don't know how it was stored. Uh, it's cotton material. And it's not as strong as it was, even the freshest ones, but most of them are really not as strong. So I would never trust that to be a functional piece of protective gear. Uh, I would advise getting something newer that is actually tested and rated to be snake-proof. It's going to cost you more than these will, but uh, that's if you're that worried about snakes, it's not a place you want to be cutting corners. So I hope that helps, and uh, if you got any more questions, feel free to look me up. Oh, uh, as always, email on the website at oldgrouch.com. And thanks for listening. And, Jack, as always, thanks for the great show. Um, I completely, totally, 100% agree. And I can tell you that actually a good pair of snake leggings will cost you about 30 to 40 bucks. And uh, old, original, uh, 
nineteen uh, M1938 leggings will cost you about $35, bucks because they're considered a collector's item if they're in good shape and all. So you actually are going to spend more money. And I, I don't trust my life to something that's not made for the thing I'm trusting it with my life to. Um, I just don't do that. And you don't mess with snakes. Um, you know, if you're going to be where snakes are and you're actually afraid that you might get what you call a legitimate bite. So first of all, don't mess with them. And you, you, you generally don't have a problem. But there are places where there's a lot of snakes, and specifically venomous snakes, and it is, there's a real potential when you're working or hunting or something like that to end up stepping on one. And if you're in that situation, you don't want to mess around with less than 100% safe gear. So kind of what I wanted to say is that snakes can bite through things that you wouldn't think they can bite through, including, at times, leather, depending on how thick it is and where they bite it. There have been people wearing you know, leather boots that assumed that they were safe that were bit through the boot. If you think about it, leather is nothing but skin off of a cow or a goat or something like that, and snake fangs are made to penetrate tough, heavy skins. And they can do it, and they are incredibly sharp. I'm not saying that it, a, a boot won't stop a snake uh, fang. I'm saying that it might not stop a snake fang. So if somebody was going to be somewhere where they were going to be around a lot of venomous snakes, or there was a potential for it, and it was serious enough that they thought that protection was advisable, I would actually advise you to buy snake Uh, protective boots, high snake protective boots, so that the entire boot itself is able to repel a bite. Uh, because again, you know, you're taking your, even if you're not going to, most snake bites are not fatal. However, they can be life altering and they can be very, very serious. And I'll tell you the other thing they can be extremely expensive. I had what you would call a legitimate bite when I was uh, in my late teens. I was bit by a copperhead in the back calf. I spent a day and a half at the hospital. Um, I believe the bill, which was mostly covered by insurance at the time, was like $18,000. And this would have been in 1989. 1989. I mean, you, you, when you think about that, I don't even want to think about what the cost would be today. And that was a copperhead. Uh, you know, it's 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 there's a lot less to treating a, a copperhead bite usually uh, than treating, let's say, a rattlesnake bite or a cottonmouth bite or something like that. So, for your safety, for your health, and for your pocket, don't mess with snakes. But if you're going to go where they are, use proper protection if you think you need protection at all. And I, I definitely recommend the snake boot over the snake legging. But if I had either the choice of leggings and, and good heavy boots or no leggings and good heavy boots, I would go with the leggings. Uh, and I can understand, too, why in some situations you might go that route, comfort of the boot, etc. So it's it's up to you, but uh, that's my recommendation. Next up, um, John Pugliano is going to answer a question on the outlook for quarter four, 2017, which, of course, we're heading right into. Hello, TSP listeners. Today our financial question comes from Neil, and Neil would like to have a current outlook on the market for fourth quarter. Well, that's a big question for the small amount of time that I have, but I'll try and be succinct and give you some answers on where my thoughts are on this. I'm very concerned about the overall valuations, particularly in the large U.S. indexes, things like the S&P 500. 
They're definitely on the higher end of historical averages, and that, again, generally tends to be a red flag. But at the same time, there are also some positive factors going on, and I'll try and discuss those briefly here. And, and incidentally, these things I'm going to talk about, the things that make me feel a little bit better that the economy is not going to fall apart, these were the same things that actually gave me a lot of heartburn and concern back in 2015 and 2016 when we saw the U.S. stock market have two double bottom corrections. So what I'm trying to say here is that nothing's new. The same factors that have been going on for a number of years are still in play, and they're not getting worse. They're actually stabilizing to potentially getting better. Oh, hey, let me preface this by saying that for those of you that are negative, because you look around you, you use your situational awareness, and you say, hey, things are not right here. One thing you have to remember about investing in the stock market, what's good for Wall Street isn't necessarily good for Main Street. And so when you look around and you use your situational awareness and you say, hey, this economy doesn't feel as strong and robust as they're telling me it is, well, you have to remember from the perspective of CEOs on Wall Street, things that affect you negatively affect their profits and their bottom line very profitably. For example, even though the unemployment rate is at very historic low levels, real income rates are about as low as they've been in 50 years. So while that's bad on you and your personal finances, that's great for corporate America because the less they pay their employees, the more money they make and the more money the corporations make, the better it is for stocks on Wall Street. So keep that in mind. What's good for Wall Street isn't necessarily good for you. Okay, so the four things that I think are underpinning this stock market. Number one is readily available cheap money because of artificially low interest rates that have been suppressed not only by the Federal Reserve here in the United States, but working in concert with central banks all over the world. They're all continuing to print money. And regardless of what policies they say publicly, they're keeping the cost of borrowing for corporate America very low and very easy. I was concerned about the possibility of interest rates going up as we went into 2015 because the Federal Reserve stopped their quantitative easing program and they talked tough on raising interest rates. But here we are a couple years later and they've never retired any of the over $4.5 trillion of debt on their balance sheet. And although they continue to talk about it and they say they're going to start scaling back, we'll see to what extent they really do. And even if the Federal Reserve does do it, other countries like the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, China, and all the others, they're not scaling back. They're continuing to print more money, and that money is going directly into global stock markets. Number two is the growth or the stability of the economy of China. We started to see that falter in 2015. Again, that was a reason why I was very concerned back then. If you remember, the Chinese stock market collapsed by more than 50%. In August of 2015, the Chinese government unexpectedly devalued their currency by 2%. They did that overnight. It was a real surprise to the market. There was concerns that the Chinese economy was slowing down at a much faster rate than the official numbers were claiming. And since so much has been invested in China over the last 20 years and so many U.S. and other companies' growth rates are tied to selling to the large population in China, well, any type of slowdown in China would be concerning for the economy. And so while that was a real concern two years ago, what has happened since then is just like the central banks are artificially stepping in and intervening to keep interest rates artificially low, the Chinese government continues to print money, and I mean money in the trillions of dollars a year, to continue to prop up their artificial economy. And you can say, well, hey, this is not going to end well. And I agree with you. 
But at the same time, a Ponzi scheme can go on as long as it goes on. And so for now, the Chinese economy does seem to be growing at somewhat of a stable rate. They're talking about a 6% growth. I think it's closer to 4%. And as long as that economic engine can keep moving forward, it's good for the global stock market. That takes us directly to the third item, which is commodity prices in general and oil and energy products specifically. Again, going back two years ago, we saw a collapse in oil prices. Oil went from a high in 2014 of, of over $100 a barrel to hitting a low in January of 2016 of about $28 a barrel. Now, it didn't stay there long, but the threat was that we may see collapse in commodity, collapse in oil prices, which would mean default on debt. Much like it would be bad news if the Chinese economy collapsed, it would also be bad news if commodity prices collapse. Because companies and countries who are relying on a great deal of debt to fund the production and exploration of commodities, like copper or iron ore or oil, well, as long as there's rising prices in commodities, that debt can be funded. But when commodity prices fall below a break-even point, then that debt can't be financed. And so that's why in 2015, you saw Saudi Arabia, a country that's awash in oil, and has had a stranglehold on the price of oil for the last 40 years, well, for the first time in a long time, they ran a government budget deficit that was in excess of $130 billion. So collapsing commodity prices were a big problem, but they were tied directly to growth in emerging markets and specifically to growth in China. So once again, as long as the Chinese government was able to keep that house of cards afloat, then that put a floor underneath commodity prices. And then finally, the fourth point is political stability and, more importantly, government policies that are regulatory and looked at as a hindrance to the growth of business. In 2015, the Obama administration was using the last half of the second term to really pile on as many regulations as they could. It appeared back then that Hillary Clinton was the heir apparent, and that's why you had all the fat cats on Wall Street and all the big bankers donating heavily to the Clinton Foundation. They were trying to buy as much influence as they could with Hillary that she would be more business-friendly like her husband Bill was and not as restrictive as Obama had been. Well, look what happened. We didn't get Hillary. We got Trump. And while the uncertainty of Trump and his tweets and the things that he says can create some real volatility in the day-to-day stock market, Overall, Wall Street and even global markets are pretty happy with the Trump administration because while there is a great deal of uncertainty as to what will happen, there's the prospect that even if regulations don't loosen up, at least they won't get any tighter. So you combine those four things together, and while there are inevitably going to be bumps along the way, and this market could easily correct 10 or 15% just to get to normal historical price-per-earnings ratios, I think those four items are at least enough to prevent a major catastrophic meltdown in the economy like we saw in 2008. Having said that, I will also say that I think as we do move closer to the 2020 elections, those four conditions are likely to deteriorate. And since three of those four conditions are not based on market forces, but are simply contrived by central banks or government policy, when the rubber band does get stretched too tight, it is inevitably going to snap. The problem is that none of us know exactly when that's going to occur. So I would encourage you to watch those four factors, and in particular, because we can't trust anything the politicians, the Federal Reserve, or the Chinese government say, 
What we really have to rely on is the market price volume action around commodities. That's where the real tell is going to be. In fact, right now, I'm heavily watching copper. And copper is generally a really good indicator of the overall health of the economy. It looks like maybe last year, the year before, copper might have bottomed out at around $2 a pound. Right now, it's trying to break up above a very strong resistance level at $3 a pound. So I'm very closely monitoring the price of copper. And then one other thing, I'm running out of time here. I can't get to everything. But I will also say that I'm keeping my eye on the unemployment rate. I know that number's fudged and manipulated, but it is what it is. The unemployment rate has a really good correlation with determining recessions, and it isn't so much what the rate is, but what is important is the change in direction of when the unemployment rate starts to rise. In almost every factor over the last 60 years, whenever the unemployment rate starts to go up, irregardless of what level it's at, that generally indicates we're headed into a recession. I have a YouTube video I'll give Jack the link to. Check that out and keep your eye on the unemployment rate. Well, I'm out of time. If you'd like to hear more about my commentary on the stock market or general wealth building principles, then please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. It's a spot-on analysis as far as I'm concerned. I, I have nothing to add because I think it's absolutely spot-on. Uh, next, I have a question for Gary Collins on the differences between ketogenic diets and paleolithic diets. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, where I discuss and talk about all things primal lifestyle, paleo diet, simplified living, and living off the grid. The keto-paleo comparison, I get asked this question quite frequently, and as I've explained in the past, paleo is a, and I know Jack talks about this, but paleo is a diet that you can use long term, and it is a diet, I call it an elimination diet because it eliminates a lot of the food products that cause us a lot of harm in the sense of uh, processed dairy, grains, and beans, legumes. So the difference between keto and paleo is paleo, like I said, can go long-term. It's very difficult if you do it very strict. You can go on and off it, and most people do. Um, I do as well. I, I do it pretty strictly. But with keto, keto, ketogen, a ketogenic diet is a high-fat diet which is usually 80 to 85% of your calories are consumed in fat, roughly 5% or zero in carbohydrates and the remainder in protein. As you can see, that is very difficult to do and it has become very trendy. It's a hot topic right now. It goes through the typical, you know, diet cycles. The deal with keto and I teach this and I've said this till, you know, I'm blue in the face. Ketogenic diet is only good for a two to three week window. It is, I recommend people using it to either kickstart themselves to get into more of a fat burning mode if they've consumed, you know, maybe gone off the paleo diet or have been consuming the typical American diet, which is a bunch of highly processed sugar and grains. If you, but other people use it in order to like, uh, bodybuilders have used it to cut down now, um, you know, people who compete in physique contests and also people who want to lose weight as far as going to the, you know, going on their honeymoon or they're going on vacation in Hawaii and they want to look good in a bathing suit and they want to lose weight rapidly. 
especially body fat. It works very well in that. The reason it only has a two to three week window is your body adapts to it. The only time your body will be exposed to that much fat in consumption is starvation. So eventually your metabolism will downregulate and you'll start to lose the benefits. I know a lot of these yahoos teach you can eat ketogenic diet long term. Trust me, it doesn't work and it's not worth it because think about it. That's a lot of fat. And, and to consume that much fat regularly is very difficult to do. Most of these people, you know, their, their breakfast is a stick of butter, you know, melted and cooking two eggs in it, you know, a half a stick of butter and a cup of coffee, you know, a lot of bone broth, you know, not that say that these things are unhealthy. They're not, but you know, anything you do overdue is never a good idea because now you're missing out on a bunch of other nutrients that you need. You know, things that are high in antioxidants, you know, fiber in the form of vegetables. You know, you do need carbohydrates somewhat. Um, you can't just eliminate them long term forever. It doesn't work unless, you know, you come from a different ethnic background, such as the Inuit or the Eskimos who lived high in high fat content because they didn't have any veg, very little vegetation, a very short growing season. So that's a different thing. Are you an Eskimo? Probably not. So probably not a good idea long term. Use your head. Um, I would recommend for this individual doing paleo and then experimenting with keto in between. And this is what I teach a lot of people. It's great to to kind of, like I said, kickstart into when you plateau. Maybe, you know, you, you lost a good amount of weight and then you've plateaued, but you want to lose some more weight. Do keto for, you know, two weeks and see how it goes. Usually it'll kickstart you again. Now with that, I want to explain too why ketogenic diet works and in the sense why fat is healthy. Fat is satiating. It, it makes you full. So having the proper amounts of fat in your diet actually cause you to lose that continuous hunger that we have with the American diet, which is turn and burn, lots of sugar, lots of empty carbohydrates. But the downside is you have to remember the macronutrients. Protein has four calories per gram. Uh, carbohydrates have four calories per gram. And fat has nine calories per gram. So it's two, almost two and a half times the amount of calories per gram. So you eat too many calories, guess what? You're going to gain weight. So remember that. That's what I mean. It's always best to do things in the proper ratios, depending what you're doing. You know, if you're highly active, you want to have a little more carbohydrates. If you're not so active or going through a period where you can't exercise, you want to cut the carbohydrates back, increase the fat and protein. And that's what I always teach you. It's not just a strict eat this, eat this proportion, eat this proportion of macronutrients. It doesn't work that way. Your body is always changing. It burns different fuels. It burns different amounts depending on what you're doing. That's how it works. I hope that helps. And uh, guys, go make sure to check out my new book, Going Off the Grid. And thank all the pe- I want to thank all the people who have been writing reviews on Amazon. I really, really appreciate it. That is how uh, Amazon ranks the book and helps get it in their algorithm to uh, get it in front of people. Thanks again, guys. All right, next up, let's hear a report on what bees did during the eclipse from Michael Jordan. 
This is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hey, and I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, mead making, anything in that genre that I could help you with. Hey, my question today is not really a question, but for those that were interested on the bees and the eclipse, I got a really super cool note, and I wanted to share it. So I thought it'd be cool to give out some information for you as we try to explain some things. So it says, Michael and Jack. Thanks for connecting me to Michael, Jack. I uh, enjoy you guys on the show immensely. Zach. Michael, we bought a solution beehive scale. It's accurate to 10 grams and measures every 15 minutes and connects to the device via Bluetooth. And we have retrieved some data. It's interesting. Our goal was to see if the bees returned back to the hive during the eclipse. The data doesn't suggest that they did, but the grams is a lot of bees in 15 minutes. Is a, in a large time span. Uh, the, the eclipse was 2:44, and was able to get the, uh, the recording of 60 seconds of almost the total of the eclipse. What we did find was that the weight of the hive was increasing each day until August 21st, the eclipse, and then it, been, and then it began dropping. I noticed a lot of bees dead around the hive, uh, where there was none last week. I also noticed that there's a large number of bees. At 10 o'clock every day, they stay on the hive until the hottest part of the day and then leave, right after it starts to cool off. This assumes the weights must be changing in the bees. My best clue is that the eclipse changed something. I'm not sure, and I have no idea what it was, and that the bees are returning to the hive to cool off, and the hive at the apex of the temperature, and they leave the hive to forage to bring back the honey. Do you have any thoughts? Attached is a graph for the several days. I'd like you to look at it. Give me, I can give you access to the account for the data. I'm interested on in your take. If you have one, Zach. So Zach did some good studying uh, about the bees uh, over the eclipse before it and everything. So, uh, so what Zach did with cell phones, Zach. So what 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 I did with cell phones is kind of like what you're doing. Right, you take all the data that you can think of. Times, days, month, years, season, temps, weight, wind direction, speed, light of day. Man, anything you can think of to, to, to get the data. I mean, uh, you even might want to know what types of bees. I mean, it could be anything. Uh, log it, log it, log it. In addition, uh, Zach, you did a great job. Uh, the information that you gave me was really cool. So from all your data, it's showing lots of weight coming from at 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock, uh, three days before, and all the day of the eclipse, or, uh, right up until after it. And then right after it, and now the days after the hive is dropping weight. And even dropping bees around it. And uh, it looks like for the last three days after the eclipse, this has happened. Um, he's still seeing large clusters of bees at the hive as the weight drops during those hottest times of the day still. As I, uh, man, as I do tests like this one, one should compare it to more than one hive, and so you compare hive to hive, and then you could, you could compare this to location and location. So um, here's kind of like what I'm talking about all that. So like uh, location zero is the blackout zone. 
this is where I would compare hive to hive. So I'd put maybe two to three hives at location zero, where I could test to see those hives. And then I would put three hives at different locations, spanning out until where, you know, kind of in the same zonal area within, I would say, a maximum of two miles. I would uh, space them out so they're away from the black zone and compare hive to hive and location to location. Uh, so that would be something that I would kind of add. That way you could do a lot more in this research. Oh, and, uh, you know, I guess you should get a starting point for all this, a baseline. Uh, what did they do this last time last year? When did, uh, why did this not happen? What did happen? And using the same system and comparing from last year to this year with the eclipse to next year. That way you can even see if there's a seasonal involvement. So I mean, you got you can get a baseline, and so and and I also learned one other thing about this is you need something to compare the test to. Uh, so you know, kind of like my comparison that I would be using is I want to see what's going on with, with the summer squash and winter squash in pots at the same locations, uh, doing the baseline testing as well as the eclipse and trying to show all that we can. Now, here's how I would do all this and. Uh, this would probably even get you a grant to pay for this. This would be the whole scenario, right? Uh, first, you need a thesis. Like, we think over the time of the eclipse, honeybees will not work as they would fill it as nighttime and they will all go home. Then my report. At this time last year, it was very dry. We did not have moist, mo much moisture. My squash plants in winter, summer, uh, did okay as planted, and I monitored and logged them, water, sun usage, and location. This year before the eclipse, we had rain every day uh, around about 3 p.m. and I have massive growth on the winter squash, but the summer squash one is slowly dying off. On the beehives last year, we did not much get did, did not get much activity as it was dry and the flowers were towards their end. The hive's weight did not change as it slowly deteriorated as it getting close to winter. This year of the eclipse, three days, we could see tremendous weight gain of the hives and mass activity. Bees all over the sides, even still to this day. Weight gain uh, was massive and then in minutes after the eclipse, we saw weight drop and has now been dropping over the last five days. Uh, to where we're back to the baseline and maybe even lower. Now, I would have to give a report like this for the other hives and the other hives' locations so I can compare all of them, right, and then give my conclusion. I was totally wrong on my thesis. The bees over the time were way more active during the eclipse. And only at the zero mark did we see hive locations that were dropping. All other hive locations were normal. Comparisons to hive to hive. Um, I go to my winter squash plants have gone over the edge and have driven like winters on their way and have sprouted. But my summer squash is completely and totally done and was done before the eclipse. So the plants did not recover in the zero location and the plants uh, were feeling a seasonal change. So right there was your junior high science class lesson on testing a hypothenuse. Hypothenuse, I think, is how you say it. Uh, I want to let you know that Zach did a great report. He did all of this.
by the report he did. Um, he watched this over a week before. He did his data and research of, um, man, he did this over 24-7, uh, taking measurements over like a month, every 15 minutes to get his data. And I, I really appreciate you sharing it with me, Zach. That's really cool information. And uh, like I said, just from what I'm seeing of yours, right, that uh, I think that over the time span that you saw that you saw a seasonal change, I think the bees probably saw a seasonal change. I think what you're seeing is dying off is maybe drone calling. I don't know if you've been in them and seen drones. Uh, you didn't say anything about that, but I think you might see some drone calling and some uh, bees dying. So I might think that might be something you want to check into. Um, hopefully that's kind of helped out. But anytime you want to do this right, get your make a hypothesis statement, right? Do some fact checking, do some tests, do your research, and really lay it out in a good level. And you might even get a grant to pay for this kind of study work. And uh, you just found out that during the eclipse that you get better yield of winter products, right? So did a double study in one shot, had a comparison note. Just like throw that out there. So I just wanted to give you an update on that, and it was uh, really super cool, the eclipse. And I'm glad he got to try that. And we had some great honey sales. If you didn't see my uh, Facebook stuff, man, we did some great honey sales over the eclipse. Uh, sold to people from all over the world. It was super awesome. So if you ever have any desk, uh, data or test questions or want to do a test and want to know some stuff to do it, uh, hit us up, man. Got some questions, hit us up. We're here to help super quick. Big shout out to the CAC team that is responding to Harvey. Stay frosty, be a leader, and get home, boys and girls, safe and sound. I am the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Remember to buy your honey from a beekeeper respect. Buy it from a cottage industry because we all have to start someplace and help your fellow man. Because one day... You might need that help, too, and that's a fact. And finally, wrapping things up from the panel today, I have a question for Nicole Sauce on WordPress hosting. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee with a question from Nick. Nick asks, what is the real scoop with web hosting providers who offer managed WordPress hosting for 5 bucks or less a month? Is it a fair deal or too good to be true? Well, I think we probably, probably already know the answer to that one. Details. I have a hobby website for my weekly web comics that I would like to expand and make a little extra money through ads and possibly Patreon. I initially created my site through my hosting provider's proprietary website builder. And due to its limitations, yep, it has limitations, and my desire to learn a new skill, I plan to recreate it in WordPress. Awesome, Nick. I've read up on the differences between standard and managed WordPress hosting, and at first glance, it seems managed hosting would be overkill and not worth the cost for a relatively simple site with a handful of plugins that I anticipate using. But here I see providers like GoDaddy and one-on-one offering super cheap managed web hosting for less than five bucks a month. Is this fundamentally the same thing as a more expensive provider's? who handle updates and some basic security with a stripped-down level of customer service, or are there serious gotchas or crippling limitations with the cheap packages? Well, Nick, first of all, 
I am not a hosting expert. I am a hosting consumer. As a website development slash marketing person, I do offer hosting to my clients through, through my trusted hosts. And in fact, I won't work with anybody who is not on one of my preferred three, either through my company, Spark Communications Group, or in a direct hosting relationship with one of them. What this means is that when things in hosting get complex and require an engineer, I know what to do. I use an engineer. So please take this answer with that perspective. I am the overview person, not the technician. I have three hosts that I trust at this time. Number one is Liquid Web. Number two is WP Engine. Number three is HostGator, and I only recently tested HostGator because Jack uses them, and many of you listeners have been asking me for web help and are on the HostGator system. It's a great system. It works just fine. This does not mean that there are not other hosts out there that are awesome. This is just the three who have passed my screening. I have tested these hosts, tested their customer service, worked with them through problems with good resolutions fairly quickly. They are all very stable, and they have stayed stable through the odd power outages, weather events, changing web traffic needs, SSL installs, all sorts of different things that I've put them through. And they are always helpful with my questions, even if I don't use the exact network engineer uh, term for something from time to time. Some web hosts will be just fine, except for when you don't use the exact words. They pretend not to understand the core of your problem. So all of these, these three hosts are awesome. And I've had very good experiences with all three of them. So let's go on to the $5 or less managed WordPress hosting. Dude, this is totally a marketing scam. Cheap managed hosting is usually code for a shared hosting system. So lots of sites on one like hosting thing um, with forced security updates, forced plugin updates, limited security setting, settings, and usually pretty steep web traffic limits. Like you hit the ceiling and your site doesn't work anymore. And you say, oh, fiddlesticks. And you give them a call and they say, that'll be more money, please. Or they'll say, I can't help you at all. Um, they do this so that they can afford to give you a cheap hosting package without you becoming a noisy neighbor. That's why they usually have like lockdown on what plugins you can use, very limited ability to do anything flexible with your site. So what's a noisy neighbor, you ask? Well, on a shared hosting system, there are multiple webs, like websites on one website host. So it's like segmented up and you're sharing all the same resources. And sometimes one site might have more traffic and sometimes another site might have more traffic and they're all sharing this same resource, which can work just fine if you are not having a lot of traffic. However, if you get one site on there that like maybe installs a plugin that sucks up lots of resource just to function, what that does is it causes all of the sites on the shared system to have problems. They will have slow load times. They might not load at all. I have, I actually, I was on a shared host once years ago with an organization that experienced a cyber attack because they were a political organization and it took like 10 sites down all at one time because it just overwhelmed the whole the whole system. So that is a noisy neighbor. And if you are on a shared system with a noisy neighbor, you're having problems on your site, not because of your site, but because another site on there is a problem. So a lot of these cheap 
Manage WordPress hosting sites will make it so you can only install very limited things on there just to reduce the chance that you will become a noisy neighbor. Totally makes sense, right? Okay, so all this doesn't mean that when you are hosting on one of these, you won't end up on a system that has too many sites. The other way they make money is by cramming as many sites on there as possible so that they can make a profit. And they usually count on a website doing what most websites do. So most people go out, they're like, hey, man, I want a website. And they get very little traffic. Like they build it, they launch it, they don't bother to promote it. They're not necessarily doing anything that brings people there. The person who goes to the site most often is the person running the company. You see what I'm saying? They might get like, I've seen websites that get 10 visits a month. Well, you can put a lot of websites on one system. They get 10 visits a month, right? It's when it's when you're actively marketing and growing it that it becomes, quote unquote, a problem for a very cheap host. Also, these cheap hosts tend to lock you into a year, a one year or a two year contract. Um, they'll like dangle this carrot in front of you like, well, it's only $1.99 a month if you pay for two years in advance. And they have limited ability to grow as your web traffic grows. And they don't do refunds. So I have had more people abandon these kinds of hosts, leaving paid hosting contracts unused because in order to grow, they had to either pay the quote unquote cheap host way too much money to increase their bandwidth or the host is unable to grow with them at all. Like some hosts are like, no, this is what we can do. You need a new host. And that sucks. So do yourself a favor, Nick. Don't be tempted by the siren's call of the cheap host. Don't worry about managed hosts. You're not really getting much for that management. Look at one of the three I recommend. HostGator, Liquid Web, or WP Engine. Or reach out to me and we will set you up through Spark Communications Groups on one of these hosts. And if it helps, if you want to go on your own research project, here are four things to look for in a host. One, do they have technical support that you can communicate with? By which does, I mean, does technical support speak the same language you do in a way that you can understand it? I like phone support as well as um, like text message support. Other people are fine with just text message support. But either way, if there are language complications with the support system, it just, it adds a lot more time. Like I had to work with a host in, I was, I was saving somebody from a bad host actually. I had to work with somebody and it was a Slavic speaking host. I don't remember if it was Russia or somewhere else. Anyway, we had a lot of trouble because their English wasn't, you know, compatible with my English basically too. Um, Get a host that has flexible plans so that you can easily add to your plan as your website and your grows and your needs change without doing a whole bunch of like rebuilding of the site, moving of the site, that sort of thing. These three web hosts have a ten, are, are built for you to grow with them and they will gladly take more of your money as you need more resources on your site, right? Okay. Three. No, don't work with anybody who requires a one-year contract. Just don't do it. Don't work with anybody who requires a two-year contract. That doesn't mean that if you really, really like a host after you've used them for a while, you don't pay that year in advance because you trust them. But what you want is somebody willing to do month to month because they are confident that they're going to keep you. 
And then the fourth thing, and this is one that's not as important to me, but very important to other web developers. And I, I reached out to a friend and asked, and they said they really want cPanel access. Now, you may not know what cPanel access is at this time, but as you get under the hood of your host, you're going to find things that you need to do, like install SSL certificates or maybe mess with your email that require cPanel access uh, most of the time. I actually, WP Engine does not have cPanel access. They have a very responsive 24-hour, seven days a week tech team that does that sort of jiggering for you right there while you sit. I've never, it's never taken me more than 20 minutes to get something done. So with them, I don't need cPanel access, but, um, but I can totally see why you want cPanel access and you will get that with Liquid Web and with um, HostGator. So those are the four things to look for. I also, like when I test them, I like to test their, like I like to bring up problems. I will make up problems just to see how they're going to handle me and if they're going to be rude assholes. Um, okay, anyway, in related news, I will be launching a webinar series in November that walks you through the development of a basic WordPress site for your business. Uh, we will we will have a list of trusted premium templates that are well supported so that you don't like buy one that has five users and they're never updating it and it becomes incompatible with WordPress. Can't guarantee that won't happen because every premium template eventually dies. Um, and we will also have access for you to a graphic designer to help with some of the things that come up as you develop a web website. So stay tuned for more on that. And if you're feeling low on holler roast coffee, head on over to living free in Tennessee com and click on the coffee button. We've just added a coffee subscription so you can get your holler roast on a regular schedule. And even better, if you are an MSB member, go there first and get your discount code because you will get a discount on the coffee. Nick, thanks for the question. I looked at your site and I can't wait until you monetize it. Keep me posted when you're ready to do that. And Jack, thanks for the show and for all the support you've given the CAC group this week. They are doing fantastic work for people in need in Texas and Louisiana. And it's been really, mm, it's been very emotional to just watch how they are helping people as best they can uh, in a very tangible, practical way. Okay, everybody, make it a great week. All right, so I wanted to finish up the show today talking about um, something I'm getting a lot of emails on, and I wanted to blend some other stuff into it too, i.e. the $45, $50 bottles you know, f for a case for a bottle of water, memes that are going all around Facebook now, and people are outraged at Best Buy, and I want to kind of show you how the two go together. Let's start out with the question. The question is, can you comment on gas and diesel supplies outside of the Harvey area? How widespread will this be? How will it affect CAC and similar efforts? A grocery store in the DSW, DFW area had a sign saying they'd run out of regular gas. Used mid-grade instead. Neighboring gas station was fine, but at a 30-cent premium over the pre-storm prices. Okay, before I get into the gas, I want to talk about something that seems totally different, but it's kind of related in the way pricing works anyway. So I, I just threw out like a quick post on Facebook about this. I'm sure the hatred and rage and triggering is occurring right now because it's based on logic and reason and fact. Um, but I'll give you the basics instead of reading it to you. So you, you hear this, this horrible story that Best Buy was selling cases of water for $45 or something like that. And then there's a picture of some guy's gas station. They have cases of water for like I think they, they was like $42 or something like that. You know, So everybody just rounds it up to 50 bucks. 
And I'm sitting here looking at this, and I'm thinking to myself, who the hell goes to Best Buy to get a case of water? Who goes to Best Buy to get a case of water? Who's like, you know what, our pantry's a little thin, and or we've got an event coming or whatever, we need to pick up you know, a couple cases of water so that when people are here, they can be hydrated. Who says, let's go to Best Buy to get that? Well, nobody does. Who says, you know what, I need some cases of water, I'm going to run down to the corner gas station to get cases of water? You don't do that. Primarily, you don't do that because you know they charge more money. But it's primarily because they don't sell cases of water generally. They sell individual bottles of water. So you get water from Best Buy when you're standing in line and thinking, yeah, gee, it's kind of hot today. I should have hydrated. I didn't. And you look in the little refrigerator and you take the water out. Okay? Or you do that at a convenience store. You go and grab some beef jerky to bottle of water for a road trip. You know, maybe a, uh, um, a Monster Java or, something, or an energy drink or something. But you might grab a bottle of water, too, to stay hydrated. So I was thinking to myself, self, how much do you think Best Buy sells water for? So I went to Best Buy yesterday in uh, Fort Worth, actually Lake Worth, and I was had to go to Lowe's. So I, I just went over to Best Buy while I was there, only to see how much water was. And I looked around, and lo and behold, do you know there wasn't cases of water stacked up in the TV section? The only place I could find water at Best Buy in da uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area, where I'm sure it's not affected by storm prices, was in a little refrigerator at the front of the store. So I looked in there, and it was a $1.89 a bottle. Hmm. So then I went to Lowe's to get the few things that I needed from Lowe's, and I looked in Lowe's little refrigerator. It was also a dollar eighty nine a bottle. By this time, I'd looked at that water enough that I was kind of thirsty. It was really cold in that refrigerator, so I paid a dollar eighty nine for a bottle of water, and I drank it on my way back home. Okay, on my way back home, I stopped at the gas station not to get diesel for my truck because it's completely full, and I have eighty gallons of fuel sitting in my storage area for my diesel, and I have eighty gallons of gasoline as well. And I looked at the gas pumps, and they were maybe a little bit higher. But what I was really interested in was water, and I wasn't going to buy another bottle because I just had one. But I walked in and I looked, and you know, I looked at the thing, and it was a dollar ninety-nine a bottle. Hmm. Let's do some math, shall we? So we have 24 bottles of water. I'll do it in the calculator right now so I don't get it wrong. $24 bottles of water times $1.89, which was the best buy and lowest price, $45.36. That's how much they sell water for every day, every single day. And if we take $1.99 and we multiply that, by the 24 bottles in a case, we get $47.76. The picture that I saw at a convenience store or gas station or something like that that everybody was pissed off, I think was right around that price. See, what these stores did, they didn't jack up the price that they sell water for. People started asking to buy it by the case. They went back in their stock room, pulled it out, and threw the same price on it they sell it for every single day and no one bitches. Well, they're taking advantage of people. Hold on. You're not talking about people that went out and hoarded a bunch of water and now they're selling it to starving people starving of thirst, right, for 47, 48 bucks. What you're talking about is these were not stores in Houston proper, etc. These were stores, because these pictures were out before the flooding happened. These were stores on the evacuation avenues from all of these towns and people were coming through like locusts. And you know what happens? They're going to their friends in Dallas, 
okay, or, or Austin or whatever. There's going to be plenty of water there, but they go in and they have their kids and they get a, a couple, and they see people start like carrying out cases of shit. And they say, oh, shit, this is getting real. And the panic strikes, and what do they do? They want to buy a case of water, too. Well, the guy running the convenience store is not usually the owner. Or the guy running the Best Buy is not, like, usually, you know, the, the Best Buy is not, like, got real heavy decision-making capabilities. And they're like, they have two choices now. I'm sorry we don't sell it by the case. Or, yeah, gee, I, I, I guess. And they go get the cases and they start price. Now, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to knock the price down to three bucks? They're going to price it, you know, even if they price, even if they came out out of their hearts and they said, you know what, well, we'll do this for uh, uh, throw a $10 price on it. And people start buying three cases at a time. They're like, holy shit, we can't do this. We're going to be out. We're going to have anything for anybody else. So you jack the price up. What does that do? When a person comes in, And a case of water is $47, and they're on their way to Aunt Matilda's, which is what these people were doing. What do they do? I'm not paying that much. And they go to the, the, the refrigerator, and they pull out a bottle for each of four bottles. They pay for it, and they go on their way. And they pay the same price they would have paid the day before. It prevents people from buying more than they need. That's what happens when pricing goes up. So let's talk about gas, because there is an issue here with gas. It's not completely psychological, even though a lot of it. Let's talk about the technicals behind it right now. This is the latest article I can find. This is from Business Insider on the current state of gas, gas prices, and refineries in America. Gasoline prices are surging again uh, Thursday amid refinery closings in Texas caused by Hurricane Harvey. Gas futures for September delivery... We're up 12% to $2.11 a gallon at 10.40 a.m. Eastern Time. That's today. In their eighth straight day of gains, futures are on their longest rising streak in four years, according to Bloomberg. Uh, futures for October delivery also rallied. Prices at the pump are also higher. The, the AAA average national gas price as of 3.43 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday was $2.44 a gallon uh, from an average of $2.34 a gallon last week. Uh, Movoria's refinery in Port Arthur, Texas, which is one of the largest refineries in the United States, shut down Wednesday as floodwaters rose. On Thursday, Colonial Pipeline, which owns the largest pipeline for gas distribution in the U.S., had planned to shut down its gasoline line because Gulf Coast refiners were unable to produce, process the crude oil. Uh, Bloomberg reported deliveries will be intermittent and dependent on terminal and refinery supply. The company said in an update to help with gasoline shortage, The Energy Department on Thursday said it was releasing 500,000 barrels of oil from its strategic petroleum reserve that holds supplies for emergencies. The agency said that it loaned the barrels of both sweet and sour crude to Phillips 66 refinery in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which has not been affected by the hurricane. Uh, Fort Worth Star Telegram reported some gas stations in the area may run out of supplies during Labor Day weekend. Gas stations on the East Coast could also experience shortages, Bloomberg reported, and this could send gas prices even higher. Crude oil prices rose in a knee-jerk reaction, tracking gasoline following that ExxonMobil was shutting down its Beaumont, Texas refinery for up to two weeks, according to Jesse Cohen of Investing.com. Uh, you can read the rest if you want to. I'll put a link in the show notes. But here's the reality. First of all, oil shouldn't be going up at all. There's no oil shortage. The problem isn't with oil. Now, there is a 
disconnect in some ways between oil being refined and oil being available. In other words, the reason they gave strategic reserves to this place in Louisiana is because they need more oil than they normally get so they can increase their refinement speed to compensate for the other refineries that are down. So we have oil sitting now not being refined because the refineries are closed. So oil really shouldn't be going up in price. It's just a reactionary thing, and it's also people playing the market. Gasoline obviously has to go up in price. When you cut production by about 20% is, is like the minimum number you can look at right now of total production of gasoline per day in the United States is down 20%. You cut 20% of the supply of something, then you're going to have it, a course, especially something that people are, that has quite an inelastic demand, right? So you might buy a little less gas when gas goes up, you know, 50 cents. But in reality, most people, if gas goes up 50 cents overnight, they bitch about it, but they just pay for it. Because you're going to drive the same amount that you would anyway. It takes an extreme rise in the price of gasoline to curb purchasing of gasoline. Like, Two, three bucks a gallon is what it takes. People bitch about a nickel. You know, they bitch about a nickel and they go buy a $2 bottle of water. And a nickel and a 20 gallon cast, 20 gallons of gas is a dollar. Right? So they bitch about that dollar while they spend two on water. This is the psychology of people and they get reactionary over it. So that's exactly what we got. We have an, a legitimate shortage on the supply side. And then we have panicking. And the closer you get to the area that's, that's directly affected, like Houston all, I just saw a sign. I'm not sure if it was a legitimate picture or not or a current picture or not, but it was like nine bucks a gallon. Well, if I'm a gas station in Houston, that's probably what I'm charging. Why? Why? So I can get filthy rich? No. So I don't run out. Or so I can take longer to run out. I'm going to keep pushing the price until the purchases actually go down. I'm going to keep pushing the price until the guy that comes in with 10 gas cans fills two and goes home. Not because he's out of money, because he refuses to pay more. Do you know why? Same thing I said about the water. I'm going to raise the price till people buy what they need instead of all that they can get. And in doing so, more people can get what they need instead of a few people getting all they can get and not really needing it. This is why prices fluctuate. Does that mean nobody's gouging anybody? Nobody's taking advantage? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course some people are doing that. But in the end, it's not something you're going to get rich on. How, how, how much money do you think that, that you can make doing that? And there is a point that people stop buying altogether. And what they're trying to do is follow a pricing curve model, even if they don't know that's what they're doing. They just start worrying. We're going to run out. We're not going to have anything. I'm trying to get through to the next truck, and now I don't know. You know, if I'm down by Houston, Port Arthur, I don't want it. I don't know when the next fuel truck's coming. Now, areas like Dallas. Do you know how much of the gasoline in Dallas comes from the Houston, Beaumont area? None. As far as I can tell, none. We get most of our gas from Oklahoma. Yeah, we produce a lot of oil and gas in, in, in Texas, but it goes other places primarily. We, there's a refinery, I think it's in uh, somewhere north of Oklahoma City, that does a, a ton of refining, and they are a primary supply 
of refined gasoline to the Dallas market. Because it just works better that way. So why are gas stations in Dallas out of gas? And why is the price going up? Price is going up because it because they can. The price is going up because it has to. And the price is going up because of panic buying. Here's what happens. Somebody goes out to get gas. The pumps are empty at one gas station. Let's say they're out of un- they're just out of unleaded, right? Oh shit. You know what he thinks. Man. And they go across the street, they have regular. You know. So he goes and he fills his car up. Calls his wife, says, fill your car up. They go home and get the three gas cans that they have laying around. They never have any gas, and they fill those up. They start freaking out. And they, they fill up every day. They never learn like the tank. They, they live like we do as preppers, like but they do it on like hyper alert all at one time instead of over. So what happens? Well, then that gas station runs out of unleaded, you know, regular. People are more panicked. So people finally give in. They start buying a mid-grade. Now, they don't actually... You know, bring as much mid-grade and uh, it's you know premium to gas stations because they sell a lot less of it. So that takes a little longer to to, to adjust to the resupply of, and eventually you know, the high-grade gas sells out. The whole thing's a scam anyway. There's no need for premium gasoline or mid-grade gasoline. One would be better for everybody, but whatever. Anyway, so eventually that gas station is completely out of gas. Now, people all see that that gas station's out of gas. And they see big lines out of their gas stations. So what do they do? They get in the line. And basically what you have right now is a self-fulfilling prophecy. People are sure that gas is going to go way up and that gas stations are going to run out of gas. So they are making sure it happens by panic purchases. Does this mean you should not participate? It depends. Do you have 80 gallons or 60 gallons of gas stored in your house? This is not a long-term problem. This is a several-week problem. If you have enough fuel to go several weeks without worrying about this, I wouldn't worry about it. And when everybody jams as much gas as they can into their tank, and everybody jams as much gas as they can into their gas cans, the price will come back down to a reasonable level. Now, it will be elevated over where it was, but let's not act like the the, the, the the end of the world is coming because gas is two bucks and fifty cents. It was not that long ago that gas was up over like four dollars. Do you remember that? Back in like two thousand six or seven, something like that. It was like four bucks. I filled the suburban for a guy there where I was going hunting with that. I had a heart attack when I saw what the, the price was. I mean Again, it's an inelastic demand in a way. You'll bitch about it, but you know when the tank's near empty and you got to go to work for the rest of the week, you'll fill it up. And in the end, twenty cents, fifty cents, it sucks, but it's not that big a deal. A couple, a dime, a dime is meaningless. If you can't afford to fill your tank because gas went up a dime, you got an income problem, not a gas expense problem, or you have a spending on other things problem. I don't know which one it is, but you do. Or you're driving the wrong vehicle because right? you drive way too much for the vehicle you drive. You see what I'm saying here. Now, the upshot of this is it probably will cause some level of pricing upward pressure on a lot of goods and services because gas runs everything. But it's small potatoes compared to the real problem. The real problem is there are millions of people with their homes destroyed. To, to, to worry a huge deal about this 
Well, there are people down there that just want somebody to come with a hammer and a pry bar and help them pull drywall out of their house. And you're worried about a case of, of water that, some, that, was on, that somebody took a picture of. You don't even know where it was. And if you think that's it, or you're worried that Joel Olstein won't open his church as a shelter. I think Joel Olstein is a scam artist. But I don't expect him to open up his church as a shelter. I, I never even considered that he would do that. It probably doesn't make sense from a liability reason alone. I, I mean, if that's what you're worried about, you're probably not helping. And, and this is where we need to get our heads on straight. And anybody that listens to this show should have, at least unless you just started, you should have 60 gallons of gasoline at home. If you've listened to this show for a year, that's enough time that you've heard the heard the method, and if you've practiced it for a year, you would just magically have 60 gallons of gas. So here's the here's the method. You might want to start after this ends now, unless gas prices haven't gone up where you are yet. You go to the store once a month. You buy yourself a gas can. You write the number of the month on it. If you write this month, it would now be nine. You write a big nine on the can. You fill it up with gasoline. Throw some stable in it. You put the lid on the gas can. You take it home. You put it somewhere safe for gas to be stored, in a garage preferably, or a storeroom, or you know something like that. Then next month, you go out and buy another gas can. You write a big giant number 10 on it. You fill it up with gasoline. Throw some stable in it, and you put it on the floor next to the one with a 9 in it. You keep doing that until you get to 8. You get all the way around to August next year. You'd have 12 5-gallon cans or 60 gallons of gas, and they are numbered 1 through 12. You know what you do in September when you get back to nine? You take that can of gas. You dump it in your car or your truck. You throw it in there and you take it to the gas station when you fill up. You fill number nine back up. You bring it home. And then in October, you do it with number 10. And that way you never have gas that's more than a year old. It's been stabilized so it would last two years. It's constantly ro rotated. It's really painless. It doesn't add that much expense to your life. And once you get through the first year, it doesn't add any expense. Well, I had to buy five gallons for the can, but you took five gallons out of the can and put it in your car that you would have otherwise put in your car. See? And then you, you would say to this, I don't care. That's how I feel right now. I don't care. I did tell my wife, I know you like to run the car till it's empty. When you're out, fill your car up. She'll be good for a week or two. And after that, if, that's just still, if this is craziness, I'm going to dump a couple, couple cans of gas in her car. I don't care. I'm not worried about it. And that's the whole point of preparedness. And to see, the thing is, when you're not worried about it, then when somebody shows you a picture of, you know, a, a, a ridiculously high gas price, you say, well, well, where is that? You know, how much fuel is available? Now, how will it affect CAC? Hey, we are telling people, you need to load up with fuel before you come down. You know, and you need to be paying attention to where people are running out of gas. And you need to not run out of gas. Does it hamper the uh, the effort? Yes. But I'll tell you what. I would rather have my people somewhere down there trying to get stuff done and say, shit, we have to spend, I don't know, 50 bucks and buy, buy a little bit of this gas at $8 a gallon so that we can get up out of here 
and get somewhere where we can fill up where it's not so expensive than have them go, gee, you know, this guy had a really great heart. He never raised the price on his gas, but now he doesn't have any and we're stuck. See, because that's when you approach the problem from a logical, reasonable standpoint and you actually trust in markets. You know that someone can't go on screwing people on price forever, and if they truly screw people on price, it's going to harm them for far longer than the disaster lasts. So the market adjusts. It's a very simple thing. But what, what do we want? I want it now. I want it now. It's not fair. It's, it's not fair. It's not right. They're making too much money. They're not making that much money. The guy that's charging nine bucks for gas... If he really wanted to make as much money as he could, his price is somewhere probably around five bucks. Because he'll sell every freaking gallon at that price. He'll close his doors. He'll have no operating expense. And then when a truck comes, he gets new gas at a new price. He puts a new price on it. If he's selling at nine bucks, he's trying to not sell every drop of gas. He's trying to make it till the next truck. But we have been so trained to think that you have something coming to you or you're entitled to something. People that run gas stations, they are in the service business. They're there to serve you, but they don't have an obligation to do that. There's no moral obligation for them to price gas a certain way. But in the end, when you look at what they're doing, it's actually far more moral to price something where people will buy only what they need rather than to price it where they'll buy all that they could get. Because if you really want to make money in that situation, you throw it up to $350, you'll sell every freaking drop in a day, and you can just go out of business and count your money for a while, right? But you know what? It wouldn't be enough money, because that store doesn't really make money on gas. Gas stations in general make about 2 to $0.03 cents a gallon. That's what they usually make. They make money on that $1.99 bottle of water. Yeah. And the Slurpees and the beef jerky and the slushies. Amazing people are upset, you know, about paying three or four bucks for, for gas when there's a shortage. But they'll go in and they'll buy a $2, $3, $4 coffee from Starbucks, a $9 bag of beef jerky from the, from the same convenience store. It, it's just because you're not thinking. It's because we've been trained not to think. So... Anyway, folks, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I had a really great lineup for you, I think, with the expert counsel. I hope I made you think here at the end. If you want to support our show, I don't have an item of the day for you today, but you can always go to tspaz.com and do your shopping at Amazon. Buy stuff before you need it, and that way you won't worry about it going up when everybody needs it. Basic, basic 101, tspaz.com. Whenever you shop online, shop through Amazon, go to tspaz.com. Whatever you buy, you help support Survival Podcast. We have great reviews for you to check out. There's some really cool stuff. Put out an item of the day almost every day, but not today. That brings me to our song of the day today. It's by uh, John Bon Jovi. Actually, I think it's by Bon Jovi, the band, rather than just just John himself. Um, bon Jovi's a guy that, like, I love his music. I feel about him the way I do about, like, Bruce Springsteen. Love your songs. Don't care for your politics at all. Um... But, you know, that's not really what the purpose of a musician is, is to worry about their politics. I like a lot of his songs. I actually had never heard this one, but I, I like the song. The concept is we all have things that have damaged us, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Everybody's broken in some way. The question isn't whether or not you're broken. It's whether or not you can pick yourself up, put yourself back together. 
And sometimes knowing that the people around you are broken too makes it a little bit easier to do. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. I hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to build up, blah, blah, blah. Helping you figure out how to build that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Welcome to the party. Come on in and disappear. You're feeling like a stranger. All your friends are here Little lines and cracks Around your eyes and mouth Something's trying to get in Something's trying to get out It's okay Everybody's